This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Van Battam, welcome to Better Reading. Oh my God, Hi. Hi, so lovely to be here. I just said that while you were having a sip of your coffee. Oh no, that's that's totally fine. I also just got a phone call. This is my life. Hi. (laughs) And who bought you your coffee? My mother. My (laughs) eighty-year-old cancer patient mother brought me a coffee this morning yeah. as she's wanted to do every morning so I am in Sydney looking after her we got the phone call about her lung cancer four months ago and as I was telling you before the podcast started we were in Wagga my partner and I doing a gig of our podcast the week on Wednesday in front of a live audience and having the best time there was a festival on and the interesting festival and all these cool like, regional artists and cellists on the street and amazing food and ice skating and the whole thing and my mother called and said look it spread to my bone uh it's lung cancer as well and um and my partner and I were like well I have to go to Sydney I've got to care for her who knows what's happening and he went I'll go to Melbourne I'll sort everything out I'll be up in Sydney with you in a couple of days but lockdown came down that night and I haven't seen him in over four months we are one of the relationships of lockdown and it's just amazing to think that we're these two you know Australians who have been living through this incredible separation. I mean, we've got it a lot better than a lot of other people, but my, it's been very difficult. They're really it's tough, very, very really tough. I, I was describing, because, you know, Americans just don't get a sense of state lockdowns. I mean, they just, I don't know how many times I've described it to my friends in the US, um, of which I've got some very close ones and very smart ones, but they're just like, what? Can you say that again, that you can't travel to Victoria? No, no, it's most likely I'll be coming to San Francisco Francisco before I can travel to Victoria you know yeah um, they don't it, understand it no they don't I, I wrote a piece actually this week for the New York Times which broaches the the research that I've been doing in my QAnon work where I talked about how the American far right is creating this propaganda image of Australia as a totalitarian dictatorship and you know they they're working with the far right in Australia to provoke police, start fights, generate scenes that are for video, and these videos of you know Australian authoritarianism are appearing on Fox News and all Infowars and all these crazy far right channels, and it's so interesting because people think that you know Australia oh it's so harsh and we've just been going along with it because we prioritise public safety and human life. I mean it's. It's and, really, and, and we are. I mean, yeah. I, I spoke to Damien Cave recently, who you probably know. and uh, Love him. Love yeah. Damien Cave. Yeah. 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 And we spoke about that at length. It was a really good podcast. Hey, let me introduce you because there might be some people who don't know who Van is out there. Um, she's an Australian writer, 
playwright and social commentator. She has written critically acclaimed dramas and comedies, including Banging Denmark, Burnt Snow and The Bull, The Moon and The Coronet of Stars. She regularly writes as a columnist for The Guardian Australia. She's here to talk about her latest book, QAnon and On, an investigation into the internet conspiracy theory, QAnon. Crazy, crazy. I I feel that, and I'm a a huge consumer of uh, world news um, and I subscribe to the New York Times and I am so worried for the future. (laughs) I'm worried about the environment and climate change, but I'm also equally as worried about democracy. I don't think you're alone there. And uh, certainly my experience of researching this book was becoming very aware how organised the opposition in the Western liberal democracies is to democracy. I mean, Steve Bannon is not a fan. Democracy is a conduit for where he wants to go politically, but he's really interested in making that a one-way street. And I say that in full knowledge that Steve Bannon, who was the genius behind the Trump campaign in 2016 that got Trump elected to president, he has been pursuing a campaign to take over the United States for 30 years, which sounds like the plot of a bad movie until you realise, well, he used to be a Hollywood producer and uh, lots of bad movies are kind of his thing. And it's an extremely organised, well-funded, well-targeted, completely ideologically and practically thought out campaign to take democracy away. That is what's going on. It is what's going on. But, you know, I can't imagine what it looks like, what their idea of democracy looks like. What does it look like, Van? Well, it looks like different things to different people. So over the course of the book, the book's not just about QAnon. It's about a a model for internet conspiracy cults, Mm -hmm. of which there have been a few, and there are constantly evolving derivatives of Mm. those. So specifically in the book, I look at Gamergate and Pizzagate, as well as QAnon and a number of the intersecting sort of theories and events and communities that have taken place over over the past sort of 16, 17 years in internet law and internet history. And looking at this sort of new model for generating uh, cultural product and looking and you know conceiving of political movements, mobilising people politically. What happened was people like Steve Bannon and a lot of others realised that there was incredible political potential in what you what you could convince people to believe on the internet and how you could find communities of people that before the internet were quite disparate and separate and and make a community out of them. And if you knew the right triggers and the right political provocations, you could get them to behave politically in a certain way. That's the genius of, of the organisers. When I refer to that sort of organised far right and the likes of Steve Bannon and the organisations run by people like that, they have a very specific worldview that is, you know, democracy makes mistakes that they don't like, you know, like legislating multiculturalism or redistributing wealth or, you know, agreeing to trade deals that they may or may not favour. Can and- I just go back to redistributing wealth? Because mm. I, I think that that's the theory, but in actual fact, greed is the overriding factor. And nearly all of them always want money in their own pockets. Well, yeah. I mean, look at Steve Bannon. Like Steve Bannon is a million, 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 million. Did you know he owns 
part of the intellectual property of Seinfeld because he was one of the early investors in Seinfeld. I did not. So whenever Seinfeld goes into syndication anywhere in the world, Steve Bannon gets another royalty check, another one. And he was a banker at Goldman Sachs, like he's made of money. And you look at people like the Koch brothers in America who fund heaps of these right-wing campaigns and all the people who Donald Trump tapped for money over his time. You know, there were a whole bunch of millionaires in, who got these incredible plum government positions during the Trump administration who had all donated to the Trump campaign. I mean, it's mm. outrageous. And the problem with democracy is that it does legislate redistribution of wealth from time to time. And even though the millionaires and billionaires have been acting in very favourable economic conditions with parties who pander to them all over the West, the problem is that the greed is insatiable and also democracy gets in the way. Like democracy means that there are limits on their behaviour and they don't like that. Mm -hmm. They never have. They want to go back to aristocracy with themselves as the aristocrats. And that certainly, it's about power without responsibility and that's what they're seeking and that's not far-fetched like if you if you look at any of the kind of work that they do and where they're going what they're prepared to do like that's the ultimate end goal where it becomes different is for the believers and what and the people who get manipulated into supporting that campaign because if you say like so the whole belief system of QAnon specifically is that there is a secret cabal of elites throughout the world who are all pedophiles who rape and torture children to milk them of a substance called adrenochrome which is a fantasy substance it exists but it's not what they say it is and adrenochrome is this byproduct of adrenaline production and you harvest it from children and the more freaked out the child is, the more powerful it is, and you drink it or inject it or whatever and it makes you young and beautiful. And it's like, no, if you want to know why Hollywood celebrities are young and beautiful, it's called plastic surgery. Like that's, you know, and skincare regimes and things like that. It's not milking tortured children. But they believe this and they believe that protecting this source of power is what the elite is all about and the elite have all these minions. And it's, I mean, it's nonsense and completely mm. crazy stuff. But they, if you said to them, look, there is actually a lead of extremely powerful like, former Goldman Sachs bankers who get money every time anybody watches Seinfeld and they're trying to take democracy away and rule your life and just use you as some kind of exploitable producer of capital, you know, that they wouldn't be into that. They'd see that as part of their, but that's literally who is, who's setting them up with all of this stuff. They are actually really interesting because the analysis of them and the sort of popular mind about who these people are and what they follow is is largely incorrect and based on a lot of stereotypes. And this is something that I found really interesting about my research was that we think of the Trump voter and the sort of January 6th and the January 6th protesters are a really good example that, you know, there's this belief that they're a bunch of rubes you know, that they're Dumbo working class people who have just drunk the Trump Kool-Aid and that, you know, they're these sort of weak, easily manipulated rednecks, you know, who are just too dumb to realise how the world works and have been, you know, victims of this internet propaganda and and there's this idea that they are all racist and that uh, it's their racism which is the big animating factor for them. 
Well, it actually, as with most things, the truth turns out to be a bit more complicated. One of the things we know about the January 6th protesters is they're not uh, what's typically known in political theories like a lumpen proletariat. You know, the lumpen proletariat is like the unemployed and the sort of quasi-criminal classes and people who live on the edge of society who can be manipulated into these sort of criminal acts like setting fire to a Reichstag theoretically or whatever else. That's not who they are. They're middle class. What we know about the January 6th protesters, which we found from their arrest records, was that they were small business owners, doctors, teachers, lawyers, lower middle management, people who ran car yards, real estate agents. And Tom Nichols, who's an American writer who I'm a huge fan of, even though he's a conservative, he describes them as the lumpen bourgeoisie like a a class of Americans who are post-material, who have so much wealth that they also want to be heroes and they want a cultural narrative that flatters them. And some of the sociological studies around them is quite interesting that these are people who are successful but aren't as successful as their parents Mm. and exist in this sort of paradigm where they have wealth but they're insecure about it. One of the other things we know about the January 6th protesters is that a lot of them had experiences of unfavourable legal action or bankruptcies or business collapse or divorce or had some history of an incident that was quite, like, economically destabilising. And even though, you know, most of them regained their property and whatever, there was that sort of status shock. And if you really look at the propaganda that's produced for that community, it, it does play to a sense of, of status. Like one of the terms that they use on the far right is they talk about the great replacement, the idea that, you know, the Democrats and progressive political parties in the West are sneaking in all of these immigrants from other countries as sort of cheap labour who will flood markets and take away what you have. And it exists in a, in a racist paradigm, like a traditional sort of anti-immigrant narrative with which we're really familiar in the West. We get that all oh, the time, you know, this of country, course. we're hugely familiar with that. Oh, yeah, and, you know, absolutely. Yeah. You know, whenever a Conservative Party's looking a bit dodgy, you know, start saying immigrants are going to take your jobs. Like, we know that. John Howard. I mean, yeah, of course. He used that as the most powerful tool, Tampa. I mean, I say, I say, you know, hatred started with him. He decided there and then that that's how he's going to stay. He's going to make people feel frightened and that's how he's going to stay leader. And he just jumped all over it. Well, look, as we know in the media, anybody who sells advertising knows that people respond to it for two reasons. They're angry or they're frightened. Mm. And people who want to know why the, the, the rubric of the news is if it bleeds, it leads. If it bleeds, it also fills a lot of advertising spies. Like that's basic. And that's a political value as well. And for a few short years in this country, um, despite what, despite the, the history of the Fraser government and how they gained power, which obviously was disgusting, the, the Fraser Liberals were, that were the definition of the modern Liberals, where there were principles that were important. And this was a generation of guys who had survived the Second World War and their experiences had been coloured in that way to, the, that there was a, there was a, a an approach to political discourse in Australia that was about decency. I mean, absolutely screwed working class people and women and was inherently homophobic and all of those things. But we did put the genie of the public racism back in the bottle for some time and then how it came along, terrible. Anyway, yeah. 
we're familiar with those narratives. We're familiar with the immigrants going to come take your jobs. The interesting thing about QAnon and the the, the sort of far right movement around it that shares a lot of its beliefs and was there on January 6th is even though there's anti-immigrant rhetoric, it's not necessarily an inherently racist movement and this is a really important distinction. I talk about the way that there's been, in the book, there's been this evolution of conspiracy cults on the right and I talk about Nazis on 4chan. 4chan is an image board website where everybody's anonymous. You can say whatever you like and post photos of, and people do of themselves self-arming, going to the toilet, the most disgusting things imaginable. And because there were no rules, no boundaries, no identities, people started being, you know, hilariously ironic with racism and then the very non-ironic racist turned up because it was like, hey, you can be racist here. And there's very visible Nazism, anti-Semitism, the worst things, the worst things in the world occur in that sort of discourse and the worst people are there. But the interesting thing around QAnon is that you get it's what American academics have started calling a culturalist movement, that the the racism is built into some of the animating myths of it, like obviously a secret cabal of extremely rich people who control the world and steal your children. We've That's been a Western myth about Jews since, you know, since if forever. You know, in the book I found just stories that were arguing the same thing that were being shared by the Romans two and a half thousand years ago. And of course, you know this anti-Semitic this anti-Semitic myth keeps turning up. But the interesting thing is that it's using these frameworks of of racist and anti-Semitic mythology to sort of thicken out its belief system and, and give it a familiarity that it speaks to some kind of memory that the culture has that these things just might be real because there's this echo of them in cultural discourse. But the people themselves. They're not Nazis. Nazis are going to the demos, of course, because Nazis love that kind of thing. But they don't police inclusion in their movement on the basis of race. They're not genetic hierarchicalists. They're not, I'm white good, you're black bad. What they are is they're people with this extremely animating vision of what the culture should look like. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is yeah. what I still I don't get. I don't get how America will look. I don't understand what they want society to look like or to be. 
They want to carry guns. You know, how does it work? They want to carry guns. They're Um, anti-government. They're anti-government. They don't want the government in their lives. Yeah. They want barbecues on the weekend. Like there are are memes in this community. The really thing about barbecues, they've got this thing that the evil Democrats are going to come and take their steak away. Right, right. Yeah, Ted Cruz, who is obviously like yes. a loathsome human being, um, yeah. he put out a T-shirt of a barbecue grill with a steak on it that said come and take it, and come and take it is usually something that gun rights advocates go on with in the United States, picture of a gun, come and take it. And he had a picture of a steak, like it's a meme that turns up all the time. And right. it's this sense of, you know, it's this, in America, it's this sort of warped Americana where it's yeah. like God, guns and Trump and no, legi- like no legislation that can restrict your business activity and no, you know, no anti-racism bias training at work. And it's interesting because it exists in this sort of never space where they're not, ac- they're not actually racist, but they're, they're animated by anti-racism. Right. So if you're like, let's have an affirmative action quota, that's a massive problem. Yeah. You know, let's look at taxation incentives within the economy yeah. to encourage minority businesses. That's a massive problem. And it's this this value around their status as people who shouldn't be told what to do, who should be able to do whatever they like, a very sort of middle-class bourgeois arrogance about, you know, independence and liberty and I don't have to do that. And yet they vote for people like Trump who I remember when he came in, I thought, well, he's a despot. I mean, this is going to be the the beginning of autocracy because we have somebody who really is there to acquire wealth for himself and for his family. And I predicted that first month that he got in that he's not going to go quietly. And I don't know how they reconcile with that. Because it's about what they want to believe and it's about who they admire. And, I mean, this is a really fascinating thing when you go down this rabbit hole because, and it's one of the reasons why I think smaller liberals and the left the sort of grand progressive alliance, we just don't understand how these people think. Like, no. because we're from... It doesn't make sense. Our ideological worldview is that if you're a liberal or a socialist you or, or a social democrat, you think very much in terms of evidence-based reasoning and policy. Because if you're a liberal, it's about that's how you make money, that's how you run successful enterprise. If you're um, socialist, you think in terms of how do I make a better state? How do I enfranchise? You know, and that's how we think. That's not how these guys think at all. They mm. think around, and it's why I just I love the term bleeding heart lefty because it's the complete inversion of how these you know politics behaviour actually work. That it, it's the it's the right that are very animated by emotional pull and emotional values and it's why the propaganda is so interesting to study because any of the things that I consume so I've been undercovering QAnon for over a year and hanging out with these people and talking to them and and learning about their lives and consuming all of their media and the rest of it and I've just I mean it's obvious that this stuff is nonsense so after the book had been sent off to the to the printer so I've stayed in all these groups because, I, I mean, I've developed a sort of fascination with these people as well. Because and they're people, of, you know. Because they are people yeah, and people yeah. are endlessly fascinating. Yeah. And these guys just believe stuff that is so yeah. whack. Yeah. Um, and I'm part of a group of disinformation researchers who share who share information and we're all spying on them. Sometimes I think I'm in groups which are mostly journalists and researchers, but it's um, – and police. <laughs> anyway, it's really – 
It's just fascinating. So when that boat was stuck in the Suez Canal, right, mm-hmm. um, the boat was called the Ever Given and the boat was stuck. I mean, it was obviously stuck. Every engineer in the world was on Twitter, like doing diagrams of how we're going to get this boat out. This is why this boat is there. The information was really quite tangible and obvious, shot from a million angles. The entire world shipping industry is in chaos because there's a boat stuck in the Suez Canal. There are things that won't get through. And it's like the facts are everywhere. The channels I was on claimed that the boat was full of cartons of kidnapped children. <gasps> and that the. I didn't hear that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but this is, you're not in the alternative yeah, media no. world that I'm in. <laughs> that the boat was full of cartons of kidnapped children. And the, I think the theory went that the captain, because the theories change, shift and change. The, the captain was try, was a brave patriot who was trying to bring to the world's attention that the elites were shipping these children all over the world in boxes and that the boat was stuck there and they were desperately trying to get people to rescue these children. And they decided, so apparently Hillary Clinton's uh, Secret Service code name when she was either Secretary of State or First Lady was Evergreen. And on on in conspiracy land, they had changed the name of the boat from the Ever Given to the Evergreen. And obviously it was one of Hillary Clinton's ships, because Hillary Clinton, by the way, is the Antichrist and is behind everything. And which is which is amazing progress, like for feminism, that feminism has produced the Antichrist. I think we should all be really proud of that. Anyway, um, that was what was going on. And I mean, I could get on what I call my fash phone. So I have a separate phone with a separate number my alternative personas live and all of these different accounts where I monitor what's going on. And it could be anything going on in the world at the moment and they'll put this conspiratorial spin on it and yeah, that becomes somebody, news for people. They let somebody mm. like Trump, who probably is guilty of some of those things, like who, who's been involved in, you know, sex rings and whatever, that that is somebody that they will choose as a leader Yet they're so yeah, because worried it's, about protecting children. Yeah, except then, I mean, they're not. Like if they wanted no. to protect children, they could support law enforcement efforts in this that's space. Right. They could, yeah. God help us, regulate the internet or any of those yeah. things. But that's not what it's about. It's right. about the performance of feeling. And like I said, with that boat stuck in the Suez Canal, the facts were apparent. They were omnipresent. Like you could, you yeah. didn't have to be an engineer to be able to grasp the basic engineering of a massive boat stuck in the Suez Canal. And there were people who were happy to explain it to you in lay terms. And, you know, we have these machines in our hands, the most powerful information apparatus that conceivable, and people don't use them because they don't want facts. That's not what they're engaging in it for. They're engaging in a willingness of others to furnish a fantasy that they like, Mm. that they're, you know, it's like like Dungeons and Dragons where the consequences are real people. Yeah. And that's really what's going on. Do you know, and let me just get get this out and you're going to help me with this, but when Trump was voted in, I happened to be interviewing George Saunders the writer, but he followed Trump for the, um, it was for the New Yorker and he followed the Trump campaign. Anyway, he's since written several books about that and other things. And he happened to be at the Sydney Writers' Festival at the time and we had a chat. And he said to me, I trust the system because I said, where do you think the US is going now? You know, we've got this the, you know, crazy guy in and, and how does this happen and where do we go from here? And he said, I trust the system, right? I trust that the system 
will, in the end, I guess, win over what the destruction or whatever is happening. Now, I want to bring that over to Australia, right? And I want to talk about leadership in this country, right? And you look at somebody like our current Prime Minister, who has to be probably the worst of all time. Yeah, he is by some margin. The worst by of some all time. margin. Worst Remember of all when time. we thought Abbott was bad? Yes. <laughs> what heady <laughs> days they were. Yeah. yeah. And we have somebody really that has zero to low intelligence and is making decisions, you know, who could be part of QAnon. I mean, and then I think You're going to love that. my book, Cheryl. You're yeah. going to love my book. And then yeah. I think about the the new premier that's just come in and it's, it's all despair. But what I'm trying to get to is the system now archaic? Is the system not working for any of us anymore? Oh, look, I disagree. I think I think America's in a lot more trouble than we are because of yeah. the structure of their politics. Do you think the system worked? I think the system held, but it was right. because there were people like Mark Milley from the <laughs> Joint Chiefs of Staff who were yeah. literally prepared to stage a military coup against yep. Trump if Trump okay. staged a coup and right. prepared the army to to intervene if Trump tried to stay in power. One of the great miracles of the Trump era was that you had conservatives and like full-on neocons, like people like yeah. Bill Kristol, who yeah. was one of the founders of the National Review, advisor to Reagan, yeah. you know, like George Will, one of the great intellectuals of the of neoliberalism, these guys who had been part of that concerted Reaganomics think tank movement that infected economies throughout the world, those guys had a come-to-Jesus moment who went, yeah, no, like the America yeah. we believe in might be this like sort of neoliberal hellhole of totally like unregulated free enterprise, but this is not on. And they mobilised and they mobilised in a highly tactical way to swing a crucial percentage of Republican voters who were principles-based, values-based voters away from Trump and to Biden. And Biden was the right candidate. Like my heart was set on another candidate. Same. Same. But But I I hate the, like I loathe the American system. I hate the primary system. I'm just like I never express a, a preference Whoever they pick as the candidate for the Democrats is my candidate as far as I'm concerned, even though I may have personal favourites, because I just I don't want to be on record as backing someone else. Like, I hate mm. that. Mm. I do so, and I think that's what happened. That's how Trump got in. You know, people didn't back Hillary. They wanted Bernie Sanders and they didn't go and vote. That was the oh, problem. Oh, yeah, I think that was and that was problem. or they yeah. voted for Jill Stein. I mean, if that's people right. hadn't voted Green, if, people, if the people who voted Green had voted for Clinton, it'd be a different story, but that's yeah. not yeah. where we are. No. And that's their system. They don't have preferential voting. You yeah. can't yeah. You can't go through a list of yeah. the least worst options. They have it in one or two very small areas. They call it ranked choice voting in America, by the way. Yeah. Just, there's a detail. Yeah. I mean, it was hugely problematic. And Hillary Clinton, because everybody knew that she was, she was the genuine article, she was the policy mastermind and mm. she was pursuing the long game. And the Republican movement knew that. They had tagged it very early on that they had to destroy her. They spent decades destroying her reputation, you know. And I remember because I was in America just before the 2016 election and it was pretty tense. And it was interesting having conversations with people in New York 
where I was, who had had encounters with Clinton when she was a senator, who were like, it's a parallel reality. Like she's responsive. She engages with all of these issues. She's extremely progressive in terms of what she can get done. But she's, you know, this ruthless pragmatist who doesn't commit to project, commit to projects are going to fail. It was really interesting. Like ideologically, I am very different from Hillary Clinton, but I'm very different from you know, Bernie Sanders, the great radical who was advocating the kind of policies that Labor legislated in the 1980s in Australia. You know what I mean? Everybody's like, oh, he's a great socialist. And I'm like, he's slightly more right-wing than Paul Keating, but that's okay. (laughs) Um, Which is just always very interesting. Anyway, um, we, it's about a, a will to believe and that's, why people but but my question and, and, is and trump and i look and i know that trump makes no sense because it's like but he's yeah. going to deliver the opposite of what you say you want but what they want is the feeling yeah it's yeah. not the outcome it's not the policy it's the feeling and yeah. all the the trumpian paraphernalia the hugging the flag the singing the song the rallies that's actually what they're in it for that sense of tribalism and and community and this unity around this sort of avatar of aspiration and they will forgive him anything. I'm not going to talk about this because I I, I just, we're running out of time and I want to go back to Australia a little bit. I mean, voter suppression. I mean, how the hell do you run a political party that can only win if people don't vote? But anyway, let's not go there. I want to come back to Australia and Mm. talk about a system that that may or may not be broken. Our system is great. I mean, I can tell you that. It produced Scott Morrison, Van. Yeah, it produced Scott Morrison, but it also restricts what Scott Morrison can do. It restricts the damage he can do. So, and well, realistically, the most secretive government we've had in how long? They're breaking oh, look, the, the, the system, aren't they? They're, yeah, they're appalling. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong, I've been I've been onto this for a while. Like yeah, I'm no, obviously yeah. no fan of that government and my journalism is about the terrible decisions they make and why they make them. And I certainly encourage anyone listening to this to read my columns in The Guardian. You'll find an encyclopedia of the past eight years of just liberal disaster. But we have a democratic system. Australians did put them there. And this is the thing about democracy. Like, I'm a democracy enthusiast. With um, in very few ideological ways am I with Winston Churchill, but his, you know, his line that democracy is terrible but it's the best thing we've got is absolutely true. And I trust my fellow Australians, to make a decision at the ballot box in the best interest of the country. I may disagree with it, absolutely, fundamentally, and spend the next eight, ten thousand 10,000 years of my life going, please consider the other guy as a superior, as a superior opportunity. But that that system they are a, they're a government that holds a majority by a very very slim margin they are recallable we have seen that great movements of the people can affect change even when it's against party policy or, or the express position of the government i.e marriage equality like the liberals really didn't want to legislate it they had no appetite for that to be an issue, but Australians across the political spectrum are that an issue. We can watch in real time that happening with climate action at the moment and because we have compulsory voting, or as I prefer to call it, universal enfranchisement in this country, what critics of compulsory voting, i.e. a lot of Americans, oh, how can it be democratic if everybody has to vote, which is still the funniest thing anybody's ever said to me at a party. The thing is that it we have that system in Australia because conservative country MPs were like there has to be an obligation on the government to make sure everybody, every Australian can vote no matter where they are and the, the ballot boxes must be delivered to communities and there must be enfranchisement within that system for nobody to be disadvantaged because of where they live or who they are. And 
in that way, Australian politics can't polarise. Structurally, it's prevented from polarising because you actually, to, to form a majority government in this country, you have to put forward a policy platform that will win you an actual majority of the people as opposed to just mobilising the largest chunk of the base. It's what, it's one of the things that was behind the piece I wrote for The Times about why these anti-lockdown protests are so bizarre in Australia and why the rhetoric around them is so odd because they those anti-lockdown protesters don't represent anything like a majority opinion in Australia, not remotely, because the, the broad swathes of the political spectrum are all staying at home obeying lockdown orders because that's a basic and responsible thing to do. That's a basic and responsible, if you're a collectivist, it's an act of solidarity. If you're a conservative, it's an act of stability, you know, yeah, and that's yeah. sort of the, yeah. the yeah. discussion. But these crazy images and and image and energy that's being generated, they're entirely about it's entirely about America. And it's about creating this this kind of fantasy of dictatorship and authoritarianism for an American right-wing media sphere to get their people riled up and to get them believing in this, you know, crazy nonsense and get them to do things politically. Whereas here, I don't think it was interesting because I was obviously in Sydney when the lock, the anti-lockdown protest happened where the guy punched the horse. Mm-hmm. And between a guy in Sydney punching a horse and another guy in, or in other guys in Melbourne urinating on the war memorial, it's like you have lost everyone, mm-hmm. right? And there's no capacity in our system for those guys to form a majority, like it's just not there. You know, for all of the hype around and free publicity given to Pauline Hanson, she can't get beyond that 10%. She can be influential, she can have an impact on government policy, you know, but she can't She can't actually take legislative control because if, you know, she's never going to get beyond the percentage that she's got. The one time they got all those seats in Queensland, it was all over Red Rover pretty quickly because they couldn't sustain a popular momentum and deliver um, those kind of promises. So I think America's a lot more vulnerable and I think um, news hounds who are watching what the far right are doing, the way they're attacking local democracy like school boards because it still exists on the same principle, it's all voluntary voting, you just have to mobilise more of your base. That's the terror. That's what's really frightening. And I think it's provoking a lot of Americans to think about their system and you know, what are the checks and balances? And a bunch of guys 250 years ago, white and slave-owning white guys 250 years ago who were obsessed with notions of property, like how could they possibly have predicted the kind of media environment, propaganda environment? Like there are questions around the integrity of their system that I think they'd prefer not to answer because it's their founding father kind of fantasies, but they have to. Um, because it is, I mean, it's getting really scary there and involves enormous resources and this sort of mobile army that's been stoked through the conspiracy cults online. I mean, there are always people who believe in conspiracy theories. There always are. Yeah. And there are studies that I read for the book about, you know, the majority of people believe at least one conspiracy theory. They do, like whether it's the JFK assassination or the moon landing or, you know, big farmer all getting together and conspiring to raise prices. Or that Scott Morrison is queuing on. <laughs> or that Scott Morrison is queuing on. I mean, he is in, but hangs out with He's close, yeah. It's who weaponises those beliefs and who weaponises those people and what they can be convinced by their willingness to believe to do politically, that's the scary implication and that's what I go into in the book. 
Yeah. Van, we've got to go. We're out of time. I mean, I could talk to you about so much more. The book is called QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, Look, I'm dying for people to read it because I've had a really weird year and the book is full of so many crazy stories about just what we're dealing with on a political level but also on a personal one. And uh, it's it's a ripping yarn. Absolutely. Well done, you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.